Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Christopher Palmer is a Harvard psychiatrist and researcher working at the interface of metabolism and mental health. He's developed the first comprehensive theory of what causes mental illness, integrating existing theories and research into one unifying theory, the brain energy theory of mental illness, which he goes into great detail in his new book, Brain Energy, a revolutionary breakthrough in understanding mental health and improving treatment for anxiety, depression, OCD, PTSD, and more. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Jason, for having me. So I I really enjoyed your book. It's fascinating. It's provocative. And I'll just start with the big question. What is the revolutionary breakthrough in brain health? The revolutionary breakthrough is that based on Emerging research that has really developed over the last 20 years, we can actually now begin to answer the fundamental question, what causes mental illness? And in Brain Energy, I lay out all numerous lines of evidence to, in my mind, prove that mental disorders are in fact metabolic disorders of the brain. And uh And once we understand what's causing mental illness, it opens up entirely new ways to treat mental disorders. Um, Ones that I think come with the long-term hope of healing as opposed to just reducing symptoms. A lot to unpack there. So if we think about (laughs) what what we have wrong about, what do we have wrong in how we look at mental illness today in terms of root cause versus root causes, because there are numerous causes. So so maybe walk us through today how the traditional medical establishment views all of the root causes, and then segue to how you now think, think about it in this new paradigm, if you will. So the sad news is that we have a lot wrong in the mental health field. Um, and for you know, for some people, they've had really good experiences with mental health care, and uh, they've done really well. And I don't at all mean to minimize those experiences or take that away from people. But far too many people are very frustrated with the mental health system, with the lack of effectiveness of treatments. And, you know, the the first place to start is defining what we call a mental illness to begin with. And right now, the American Psychiatric Association in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or DSM-5, it really doesn't distinguish between normal reactions to adversity and what I would call mental disorders. They all get lumped together. And so let me give you a clear example of that. If, if a man has uh, you know, a tragic loss in his life. Let's say this man's wife and two kids are tragically killed in an automobile accident. He is allowed to be depressed for 13 days, and that is considered normal. If he 13 is de- days. 13, 13, let's pause there for a second. You're fucking kidding me. 13 days. I am not kidding. So if he <laughs> is still depressed on day 14, If he is still depressed on day 14, he now, according to the American Psychiatric Association, has a brain disorder called major depressive disorder. It is a disorder that is related to, you know, a lot of people, we can get into what causes major depression, you know, and that might be a serotonin imbalance. So this man clearly needs a pill to correct his serotonin imbalance. So right now, the we don't distinguish that man from somebody else who I believe does have a legitimate brain disorder who is chronically plagued by depression and suicidal thoughts for years, will openly admit, I don't know why I'm depressed. I don't know what's wrong with me. My, I just, I'm so miserable. I am so hopeless and I don't understand why. I don't have a good reason to feel this miserable and this depressed. I have good things in my life. I have people who love me, and yet I am so depressed. Other people can take a medication, like an antibiotic or an antihypertensive medication, and become severely depressed in response to that medication. 
And I would say they have brain disorders or there's something going on with their brain that's causing those symptoms. But right now we don't distinguish between that man who and anybody in their right mind would say, of course, he's allowed to be depressed after 14 days and even maybe even a whole month. Uh, like, of course, he's allowed to be depressed and we shouldn't pathologize that. We shouldn't say he's got a brain disorder. Um, and we, it's not that I'm necessarily against using pills for that man, but. But, but I think, I think, so, you know, I, I'm hearing you speak and I'm thinking of, of causes. So like, I think what you just shared, the, the horrific example of, of, you know, a, a man losing his children and spouse, I would, I would say that's, that's trauma with a big T. So like huge, big trauma, then there's obviously little trauma. So as I think of, you know, root causes, it's a trauma and separate big trauma, little trauma, the everyday stressors, we all have that. And then you've got, you know, the other pieces, which, you know, when I, when I read about mental health, I, you know, hear genetics, I hear chemical imbalance, uh, uh, substance abuse can be part of the conversation. Uh, what else am I missing there in terms of what I, what I think of the umbrella causes? And then I think, you know, there's obviously mental health is a big umbrella. I'll just pause, you've got depression, you've got anxiety, you've got bipolar disorder, you've got suicide, you've got the, li the list goes on and on. Yeah. The, um, some of the other things, hormonal imbalances we know can contribute um, too much cortisol, too little thyroid hormone, estrogen levels, especially around the time of menstruation in women or menopause. Those, those hormonal imbalances can trigger mental disorders, mental symptoms. Um, we know sleep deprivation plays a huge role in mental illness. But right now, our field doesn't know how those all connect. And so right now, you know, some people talk about chemical imbalances as the, the cause of mental illness. And the primary reason or basis for that is that we're using pills to treat it. So the pills are supposed to be affecting neurotransmitters. And so we use circular logic. We say, well, if this pill that affects neurotransmitters is improving symptoms, of a mental illness, then the cause of the mental illness must have been a chemical imbalance. <clears throat> Other people talk about psychotherapy. They want to address the trauma or the stress um, and uh, or the you know adverse childhood or the messed up parents who you know just gave you weird stuff to think about or whatever. And so psychotherapists will say, well, this person needs to talk through these issues. We need to allow them to gain insight into these issues. Maybe, you know, that would be more of a psychodynamic approach. Some people might prefer a cognitive behavioral approach. But the talk therapists are going to talk your way through the issues, and those are going to help. And the reality is both approaches work for some people. Pills do work for people, and talk therapy does work for some people. But the overarching theme is that both treatment strategies fail to work for far too many people. And if you think that I'm being, if any of your listeners think I'm being too pessimistic with this, I just want to point out, mental disorders are now the leading cause of disability on the planet. More people are unable to go to work or school because of a mental disorder than any other medical condition. And the number one cause or the number one diagnosis that tops the list of disabling illnesses is plain old depression. Even though we have all these antidepressants, we have all this talk therapy, and we've even got shock treatment and transcranial magnetic stimulation and ketamine and psychedelics. We've got so many options to choose from. More people on this planet are disabled by depression than any other diagnosis. So we need new ways to understand and treat these disorders. I do think it's important. I, I like where you're going in terms of establishing a baseline in terms of how, how serious this is. Uh, you know, depression being the, the leading cause of disability. And so with all, with these current protocols, you know, I do think it's important to point out like, look, medication can save lives. Medication does work for some people, but the fact is it doesn't work for all of the people. Talk therapy is important and it can help, but it doesn't necessarily work for everyone. 
And so with that said, in terms of like the existing protocols, where do you find, where, where is it clear cut? Where is it black and white? Where is there sh a shade of gray with regards to if you've got, or is it all gray? You know, for example, if you have a certain type of, I'm making this up, anxiety that, or, or excuse me, a better example maybe is if you are clinically diagnosed with bipolar example, you have a 80% chance of lithium being uh, a medication that can dramatically improve your life. Like are, are there, I just want to establish like, what, what do we know? Like, is there anything with, with medication or talk therapy where we can define it or maybe not a hundred percent, but say like we have an 80% confidence level. If you have X that Y is likely to work. So we do have a lot of those statistics and the statistics are probably best for the treatment of major depression. And the statistic goes something like this. If you try an antidepressant, if you come in with new onset major depression and you try an antidepressant, pretty much anyone, there is a 70% chance it will work at least partially for your depression. There is only a 30% chance that it will put your depression in full and complete remission. But then if I follow that person in treatment over the next 12 years, which one study did of hundreds of people, there is only a 10% chance that your depression is going to stay in remission. That means there is a that means there is a 90% chance, 90% chance that your depression is going to come back, that that medication is going to stop working, or even if you're doing medication and psychotherapy, whatever you're doing, it's going to stop working, your depression is going to come back, and you're going to have to change pills or add new therapy or change providers. People go looking for a new diagnosis. They say, well, somebody didn't recognize that I have OCD on top of it. Somebody didn't recognize that I have PTSD on top of it. How much of this is a diagnosis issue? I come back to that you know, horrific example you use, what I think is, again, every, every person's worst nightmare. I just lost my spouse and my kids in a, in a, in a car accident, and I've got 13 days to grieve. Otherwise, I am classified with a disorder which qualifies me for medication. So I know it's a little bit of a chicken or the egg. Like, how much of this? If we talk about root cause, so we're 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 over prescribing, and so we're giving people no amount of medication is going to bring your family back. It could it could maybe help numb you and and get you through to some degree, but ultimately that's not going to the panacea you're looking for. Absolutely. And interestingly, that person is probably more likely to experience a full and complete recovery after a year than somebody else who I believe has a, a real brain disorder. I think that, you know, there's a difference between normal reactions to adversity that's a horrific example of adversity, but some other common ones are bullying and teasing on the playground. The LGBT community is you know, plagued with adversity um, in terms of acceptance from society, acceptance from religion, trying to sort all of that out. And the treatment for people who are having responses to adversity is to help them cope with that adversity to try to change their circumstances so that they're no longer having that adversity, so to stop the bullying and teasing, to help that LGBTQ person accept themselves, develop a life that they find meaningful and purposeful, develop close friendships and romantic relationships and sexual relationships and whatever they want. And that for a lot of people will solve the problem. They don't need a pill. Psychotherapy can help people do all of those things. So I'm certainly in favor of psychotherapy for these people, including the grieving man. If he doesn't have a community 
to support him through that process of grief, psychotherapy can be a tremendously you know, valuable resource for that person. Those are the people who are more likely to get full and complete remissions. The ones who have chronic symptoms that last more than a year, that are, seem to be unprovoked, that seem to be more kind of biological, or you know, maybe this runs in your family, kind of, or this is occurring out of the blue for no reason. Those are the people who tend to have the worst outcomes. But unfortunately, right now we don't even have good data on what I'm what I just said because we don't distinguish those groups. It's a checklist of symptoms. If you have the symptoms for more than two weeks, you are you qualify as having major depression, and we don't distinguish them at all. So I think our listeners are going to agree on, uh, about the severity of the mental health epidemic we're facing. I think they're largely going to agree that you know some of the existing protocols work some of the time and can be powerful and can save lives, but they can also not work. And there are a lot of adverse reactions and unintended consequences. And I think we're all looking for a better way. And I'll segue to sort of the message of the book. I thought it was so interesting. You, know, you start the book by saying you were tormented for 25 years trying to answer the daunting question, what causes mental illness? But this change in 2016, when you helped a patient named Tom lose weight. So let's start there. You, you you got me hook, line, and sinker when you started there in the book. So let, let's go right there. What changed? Let's go into the new paradigm. The story goes, the story of Tom goes like this. So Tom was had been a patient of mine for at least eight years at that point. He had what's called schizoaffective disorder, which is a cross between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. He had daily hallucinations and delusions, and he was tormented by his illness. He had tried 17 different medications, but none of them stopped his symptoms. They caused him to gain over 100 pounds, though. So weighing 340 pounds, he asked for my help to lose weight. And we, for a variety of reasons, decided to try the ketogenic diet as a weight loss strategy. Within two weeks, not only did he begin losing weight, but I began to notice dramatic changes in his psychiatric symptoms. He was becoming less depressed, making better eye contact, um, talking more. Within six to eight weeks, the astonishing thing to me is that he spontaneously reported that his long-standing hallucinations were going away and that his paranoid delusions were also going away. For the first time, he said, you know, now that I say this stuff out loud, I, it sounds kind of crazy. I don't think it's really true. And now that I think about it, maybe it never was. Maybe I've had schizophrenia all along, like everybody's been trying to tell me, but I wouldn't believe it. And maybe my schizophrenia is getting better now. This, that man went on to lose 160 pounds, so the weight loss was good. Um, he's kept it off to this day, six years going. But he, But much more importantly, he was able to do things he had not been able to do since the time of his diagnosis. He was able to go out in public without being terrified and paranoid. He was able to complete a certificate program, doing school classes and tests. And he was able to perform improv in front of a live audience. And that completely upended everything that I knew as an academic psychiatrist. Um, and I went on a journey to understand what on earth just happened. And at the end of the day, the quick version of that is that, you know, although a lot of people know, have heard of the keto diet as like a weight loss diet or a fad diet or even a dangerous diet, like, oh, don't do that diet, it's all fat and animal sourced foods and those have to be bad for you, don't do that. The, it turns out that the ketogenic diet is actually a 100-year-old evidence-based treatment for epilepsy. And the reason that's important to me as a psychiatrist is that we use epilepsy treatments in psychiatry all the time. Um, and uh, lots of the pills we use are epilepsy pills, Depakote, Tegretol, Lamictal, Topamax, Valium, Clonopin, Xanax, all of those are epilepsy pills. And, um, and it turns out we've got a tremendous amount of neuroscience literature. 
documenting how and why the ketogenic diet stops seizures. And those effects play a direct role in people with mental disorders as well. Is the answer anyone who's struggling with their mental health should try a ketogenic diet? No, absolutely no. not. <laughs> so um, I didn't think so. <laughs> that's so unfortunately, if people are looking for a one size fits all solution to all mental illness, you're not going to find it in me. Understanding that mental disorders are metabolic disorders of the brain, though, does open up very clear cut ways to assess people's mental health, assess what might be contributing to their mental disorders and helping people recover from those mental disorders. And I mean full recovery. At this point now, I know dozens of patients, some of whom I've treated directly, some of whom I've heard of from just around the world, some who are being treated by other clinicians. So I am not alone in this work, but I know dozens of patients who had chronic debilitating mental disorders, depression, anxiety, OCD, but also bipolar and schizophrenia. And these disorders are now in full and complete remission. And these people, a lot of them are off all psychiatric medications and doing phenomenally well. They have new lives. So the metabolic approach to mental health offers a dramatic new paradigm. But metabolism is about much more than just diet. So a lot of people think of metabolism as burning calories and it's all about weight. And if you have a slow metabolism, then you're going to be really overweight, even if you don't eat much. And if you have a fast metabolism, you're going to be skinny, even if you eat candy bars all day. Um, but it, metabolism is actually much more than that. Metabolism, um, <clears throat> you know, a, a simple definition, metabolism is a process that our cells use to take food or the breakdown products of food, turn it into energy or building blocks that get used to maintain or grow cells. And it involves the weight, the management of waste products. So energy, building blocks, waste products. Th that's metabolism. Metabolism is fundamental to the definition of life. It's extraordinarily complicated. And so in this respect, kind of, it's, it's everything. And so a lot of people are going to be like, well, Chris Palmer, you're not telling us anything new. If that's what metabolism is, you're not telling us anything new. But if you start to ask basic common sense questions, like, well, what does it mean to have a metabolic problem? What does it mean? Like what, what's happening in the cells of people with obesity and cardiovascular disease and diabetes? Like th those are all metabolic problems. What's happening? What, what does that mean? You act, end up being led to an entirely new exploding field of cutting edge research on mitochondria. And once you do a deep dive into the science of mitochondria, you actually can connect the dots of mental illness. You can start to understand why neurotransmitters might be dysregulated. You can understand why hormones might be dysregulated. You can understand why vitamin and nutrition deficiencies can cause mental illness, like vitamin B12 deficiency, for example. You can start to understand also the psychological and social causes. Why do adverse childhood events so somebody who has a horrible abusive childhood, why are those people more likely to develop mental disorders, but also why are they more likely to have heart attacks and strokes and diabetes and cancer, and why are they more likely to die early deaths? We can connect all of these dots once you understand the science of mitochondria. So let's go there. Let's talk about mitochondria. Maybe give us a quick primer on mitochondrial health and you know how you think about what good mitochondrial health looks like, what bad mitochondrial health looks like and 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 connect us connect it to mental health. It's a really complex answer to be honest, but I'll give you the simple version. So mitochondria, a lot of people know mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell. And what that means is that they, they make the power of the cell, which is really ATP. That's what cells use for energy. And that is true. Mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. Um, you know, one great analogy, I'll just give a quick analogy, and then I'll dive into a little more of the science. Um, one researcher said, if you think of a cell as like a computer, 
A lot of people think that mitochondria are the power cord to that computer. And in many ways, that's true. They are the power cord to that computer because they're providing the power. But in fact, that's not actually the only thing they do. They're also the motherboard of that computer. They are, they are making decisions about what is happening, when, where, and how. And let me give you a couple of clear examples. Mitochondria are directly involved in the production and regulation of neurotransmitters, including dopamine, serotonin, GABA, and glutamate, which are powerful major neurotransmitters in the human body. Mitochondria play a direct role in the production of some really famous hormones that all of you have heard of, cortisol, estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone all begin within mitochondria. So if mitochondria aren't functioning properly, the regulation of those hormones can be off. Mitochondria play a direct role in turning inflammation both on and off. So again, if they're dysfunctional, you might have immune system problems, or you might have abnormal levels of inflammation, either too much or too little. Mitochondria communicate with the gut microbiome and vice versa. So the gut microbiome is playing a role in this, but it's about this communication with mitochondria. Mitochondria um, actually are probably the single most powerful factor in determining epigenetics, which is the expression of different genes in our cells. So, um, so you know, all of our cells pretty much have the same genes, but they get expressed in very different ways. And that's what makes different cells different. Like a heart cell is different than a liver cell um, that's different than a brain cell. All three of those cells have the same DNA, but what makes them different from each other is the expression of the genes. And mitochondria are actually directly involved in gene expression, both in long-term ways like that, but also in short-term ways that have a great impact on whether cells function properly or not. I could go on, but I'll stop there because that's a, that's a lot. How does one know if their mitochondria is functioning properly? You mentioned hormones. Is it, is it as simple as a hormone panel and maybe some, some basic labs on seeing where inflammation is at in the body? It can. The easiest, way, the easiest way to determine whether your mitochondria are functioning properly is actually to just assess your overall health, both your mental health and your metabolic health. So if you have high blood pressure, what that means is that it suggests that you have a metabolic problem in the cells that make up your arteries. They are metabolically compromised. And that is why your blood pressure is high. Um, if you have diabetes or prediabetes, it means that cells somewhere in your body, whether it's in your pancreas or somewhere else in terms of insulin resistance, cells somewhere in your body are metabolically compromised. And if you are having symptoms of mental disorders, so again, I distinguish this from normal reactions to adversity. So if you know, if your boss unloads on you and threatens to fire you, you're going to have mental symptoms. That's normal. That is a normal human thing to happen. Um, and I don't consider that a metabolically compromised brain or person or anything else. I consider that a normal human experience. But for people who are having brain symptoms, mental symptoms that are disorders, so they're occurring for no good reason or they're way excessive or maybe even they're underactive, people who aren't having brain functions like memory or concentration that they should be having. Those are due to metabolic compromise of those cells. And then if we ask the big question, well, what does that mean? It means that their mitochondria are dysfunctional. So I think to answer your question, the best way to assess mitochondria, whether your mitochondria are functioning properly is to look at the whole person and just determine whether there are any areas of problems and just to just define it for people, I, I believe, so as you think about metabolic health and defining it, which is, is we should establish that because I think 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. So it's essentially uh, excess fat around the waist, 
I think it's blood pressure, triglycerides, uh, low HDL, and high blood sugar. Do I have that right? Like the, that's, that's correct. So if all those things are out of whack, I think it's all of them, right? Then you're metabolically unhealthy. If, if, if you even only have one out of so, whack, you're not so one out of whack. So those are the five things that people can go, you know, go out and get tested for tomorrow. You know, as I think about coming back to the big question of how do we, so this is the new paradigm. There's a connection to metabolic health. Uh, in my mind, like, okay, 88% of us metabolically unhealthy, uh, 40% obese, 70% overweight, mental health epidemic uh, exploding. Okay, a lot of trauma, pandemic, <laughs> makes sense. But how much of this is essentially uh, a obesity problem or, or a metabolic health problem? if you will, that's driving this. And then how much of it is, you know, I'll come back to the genetics question. Cause I think that's a valid question. And I, you know, I know people, you know, we all know people where, you know, certain disorders run in families. How, how much of this, if you were to estimate goes in the bucket of there's a genetic component where I'm predisposed and, you know, I'll chalk it up as terrible, terrible luck where regardless, I'm probably going to have to deal with this thing versus lifestyle in terms of metabolic health completely out of whack versus trauma. I, I know there are more buckets, but like, how, how do you think about that? You know, the real answer is that the metabolic disorders also run in families. So mental disorders, many of them run in families. That is unequivocally true. But metabolic disorders also run in families. So heart disease, diabetes, and obesity also run in families. But as everyone knows, the rates of all of these things are skyrocketing over the past few decades. It's not just since the pandemic. There's no question the pandemic added insult to injury or poured gasoline on an already burning inferno, really. But even prior to the pandemic, rates were skyrocketing. And, um, and it's rates of all of those things, obesity, Diabetes and prediabetes and mental disorders were all skyrocketing at the same time. People are having heart attacks at younger and younger ages. Cardiologists can keep them alive so the death rate from heart attacks is not skyrocketing because cardiologists are really good with you know all sorts of interventions to keep people alive. But, um, but the rates of cardiovascular disease and the age at which they're occurring are going up. Um, and but when we think about obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular disease, most people should not be blaming their genes on those disorders. Those are disorders of environment. And by environment, I wanna clearly, quickly say, this is not about blame and shame. It really isn't, and I genuinely, sincerely mean that. There is so much more to metabolism and metabolic disorders than just what you eat or just overeating. Your metabolism, so people who are obese and trying to lose weight, they can starve themselves and, and fail to lose weight. And everybody assumes they're just lying, that they're really not starving themselves. They must be sneaking donuts and cookies all night or something when nobody's looking because look at them. They're just so overweight or obese. It, it's their fault. And we, we now have a tremendous amount of science to tell us that uh, that attitude is wrong. When obese people starve themselves, their metabolism plummets which means that their body is fighting their efforts to try to lose weight. So, so I really, you know, the question that you asked starts to invoke blame and shame in so many people's minds. And I just want to get out in front of that and just say, this isn't about blame and shame. I agree. And look, I, I do think, I absolutely agree. And I think it's an important point. I, I think that everyone is different in terms of how they metabolize. Uh, genetics do play a role. And I also think that 
it is in the same way it is very hard for us to uh outsmart the algorithm it is difficult to outsmart processed food uh, you know the example i'll use is, is halo top which is you know designed to trick your brain into eating the entire <laughs> entire pint of halo top and i do think processed food plays a role here uh and i, I do think that that's an important point to make uh, and I, we do want to come at this place a place of empathy um you know and so with all that said if i am i you know coming back to the metabolic connection um you know if i am concerned about mental illness whether my metabolic health is perfect or it's not uh what should one do about it i think that the good news is that there are lots of things people can do about this and some of them are dietary strategies i mentioned the ketogenic diet and i you know the reason the ketogenic diet is so interesting to me is not because i'm trying to argue that the ketogenic diet is a diet that everyone should be on or that it's a healthier diet than a vegetarian diet or a, a mediterranean diet or something else but that it is a diet that actually mimics the fasting state. And it turns out fasting has been used in healing practices for millennia. And those, those healers, whether physicians or tribal leaders or whatever role they were in, those healers actually, I think, knew something that we lost sight of and that we're coming back around to based on all of our science. And that and the, the powerful message of fasting and the ketogenic diet is that the body has an innate ability to heal itself, but we have to set the stage for that to happen. And fasting and fasting mimicking diets are one of many stages we can set to improve metabolism. So tying in with the mitochondria connection, you know, fasting and Fasting mimicking diets do a lot of things to the body that change neurotransmitters, decrease inflammation, change the gut microbiome, promote autophagy, but they also promote mitochondrial repair and mitochondrial biogenesis, which means that your cells end up with more healthy mitochondria after people fast or do a fasting mimicking diet. And so just to be clear so when you refer to fasting mimicking i'm assuming you're referring to walter longo's program where you're eating you know some almonds you're eating very little calories over like a five-day period if i were to like summarize it and you're doing that like once or twice a year so it could it could definitely be walter longo's program it, it i would include the ketogenic diet in a fasting mimicking diet because that's what the, that, that was the whole point of the ketogenic diet is the physician who it was actually developed by a physician, a neurologist who was trying to stop seizures. And he knew that fasting could stop seizures. So, but he. Well, but I just want to, because there's, to, to me, I think there's, there's somewhat different. Fasting mimicking is, is consuming very little calories over a, you know, duration of multiple days. Whereas I view intermittent fasting, if you will, or intermittent eating windows of I am having a small a smaller eating window say it's six hours eight hours or what have you and then the rest of or fasting and then there's traditional then there's fasting where i'm not eating for a day or two or what have you so like how do you think about like they're all somewhat different they are different and i and and i think that's where it starts to get a little more complex and it depends on the person. It depends on the person's symptoms, depends on how powerful of an intervention we need and how long that intervention needs to be applied. So the, the beauty of fasting mimicking diets um, is that you can get some of the benefits of fasting, but you, you hopefully don't go into starvation mode. You're getting enough protein and other nutrients so that you're not eating away at your healthy tissue, or at least minimizing that from happening. 
you know, people, uh, because when people fast, they get these benefits, but, you know, obviously if you fast too long, that's called starvation and people die of that. So that's not a really good long-term strategy. Um, and, and so, and again, the, the clearest example where we have a robust evidence base, um, 100 years of evidence now is with epilepsy, a, a very serious brain disorder, and that those people fasting can stop their seizures. So if they fast for like three days, that can stop their seizures. The problem is that as soon as they start eating a normal diet again, the seizures, the seizures come right back. And so they need a prolonged fasting mimicking diet like the ketogenic diet or something else where you can kind of trick the body into thinking that it's fasting, but it's really not. And you're preventing starvation. And you can even allow for children to grow and thrive and gain weight and everything else they need to do using something like a ketogenic diet. But you're getting the benefits of fasting for brain health. And so, okay, I'm concerned I should integrate some sort of fasting protocol in my life, whether that's intermittent fasting, or maybe I do a day every quarter, or whatever I, I feel comfortable with and, and do, do so under medical supervision, because if you start fasting, you got to be careful with your, with your health, obviously, or, or, or maybe fasting mimicking, regardless, consult a physician on that. So, so I incorporate that. And then, you know, I'm going to come back to, you know, that if if you're doing keto fasting is the component of it and so i want to like dig into the the keto piece here cuz I, I am going to segue to nutrition and diet is it you know is it the the healthy fats is it the omegas is it what is it in terms of the diet in in keto that you believe is making a difference cuz i'm assuming I, I think you know we're covering lifestyle what should i do and you know Nutrition. We have to talk about nutrition. What is it specifically versus the blanket of go keto? Because keto could also mean, you know, eat hot dogs. And I yeah. don't think we're going to. Keto Keto nothing, can be. Nothing Nothing good. A great grass fed hot dog every once in a while. But I don't think any. That's a, a good recipe to have those every day. No. And there's a lot of keto junk food. That, you know, you can go to, you know, yes. co Costco and get all sorts of keto ice cream and candy bars and all sorts of things yes. that uh, that I am not in favor of uh, promoting. Um, sorry, uh, keto companies that are making that. But I mean, there's, um, some, there's some good stuff, too. But I hear you. That's not the yeah. message. And I think I want to identify, like, what 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 is it specifically? What should I look think for? so? I think the biggest the biggest, the key ingredient in the ketogenic diet, it really is about mimicking the fasting state. So when people are in a fasting state, what that means is that their body starts burning fat as a fuel source. And um, it's actually in the liver, mitochondria in the liver actually convert fat into ketones. That's where it happens. Those ketones can then, you know, I'm a psychiatrist, so I'm particularly um, interested in brain health, those ketones can actually go up to your brain and start fueling brain cells that are metabolically compromised. And in a nutshell, that is really key and critical, is that if your brain cells are metabolically compromised, in one way, it means that they're, they, they're not getting enough energy from glucose. There's a problem with insulin signaling or with glucose as a fuel source. There's something going on. And ketones are a way to bypass that process. But it's more than just ketones as fuel. Because if you know, you can drink exogenous ketones and still eat a normal diet. And I really, in my heart of hearts, don't believe that will have the same benefits. Um, unfortunately, I wish it did, because that would be easier for everyone. But um, but it just doesn't. So ketones actually do a lot of other things. They're a signaling molecule as well. And they represent this dramatic shift in whole body and brain metabolism. So ketones change neurotransmitter systems or the ketogenic diet changes neurotransmitter systems and inflammation and gene actually changes gene expression and different cells. So it's doing all sorts of things. But I think it's really the process of you're forcing your body 
to make ketones because that ends up ramping up this whole mitochondrial machinery in the liver. And then those ketones get sent out and probably other molecules like hormones and neuropeptides and other things are probably being sent out. And we really don't fully understand all of the science, but that process appears to stimulate three things that I think are key. It stimulates autophagy, which is this repair process that our cells use to get rid of old or defective parts and replace them with new ones. It stimulates mitophagy, which is a mitochondrial version of autophagy. So it means that you're getting rid of old and defective mitochondria and replacing them with new ones. And it stimulates mitochondrial biogenesis, which means that your cells will have more mitochondria and those mitochondria will be healthier after you do the ketogenic diet for a while. That Once that all takes place, and I think for some people that can take a while, it can take months or even a few years for some people because they're so sick. That, that, that just their body is in such a state of disrepair that it's going to take a while for all of your cells to heal and repair themselves and develop sufficient mitochondria. But once that happens, I think most people can then transition off of a ketogenic or fasting mimicking diet and go to something, certainly not a junk food diet, but maybe a paleo diet or um, you know whatever they want. I would prefer real food, whole food, that, that type of an approach. But a lot of people can actually then transition to a different diet and remain healthy. And that's the beauty of it is that it's, it's, a, it's a strategy to use for a defined period of time to, allow, to promote healing and to promote um, you know, both metabolic and brain healing. And then once those things happen, people can usually kind of move on. So I want to stay on this for a moment. I'm glad you said eat real whole food because again, you know, we don't want the message to be go load up on keto ice cream and fast and call it a day. And so with that said, you know, I, I love a good shopping list. I love actionable tips for people. So, and again, understanding we're all unique individuals, but if you had to generalize and, and say to someone, you know what, these are the five foods that are probably going to be net positive in terms of, you know, achieving, uh, you know, mitochondrial health and, and, and metabolic health and, and ultimately good for your mental health. You got to give me some foods. I will, <laughs> I will, I will give you foods, but the biggest caveat is more about what I want people not to eat. Well, let's do both. Let's do let's do our yay list. Let's do our, our list of five foods that you should definitely enjoy and five foods you should probably avoid. I don't love ex excluding, you know, groups altogether, but like, look, I, lo I, love a, I love a good donut every once in a while. Our audience knows that. I will say this up front. It is highly... Um, it is highly variable, and I really do believe this. So please don't take this five list as like Chris Palmer said, everybody has to eat these five foods and I want to be a vegetarian or I don't like that food. And we can find something else for all of you. Um, but I think I would encourage foods like salmon, eggs. I would definitely encourage low carbohydrate vegetables. So, and there's such a range that I, I can really just go with whatever people want. But if they like spinach, spinach, broccoli, cauliflower, asparagus, um, there are lots of low carbohydrate vegetables. Those are providing fiber, which can be really helpful and beneficial to most people's guts. Some people don't do well with fiber. I get it. But, you know, it, it, as a rule of thumb, I'm going to go with some type of fiber. Um, I would probably go with some type of a, a, a pure, healthy fat. So if I had to choose just one, it would probably be olive oil. Um, uh, and 
that's probably gets me to five because we'll choose two of those vegetables and that probably gets me to five. Can you make me happy and just add avocado to the list? I love avocado. Actually, I eat avocado all the time. So yes, I love it. And it's very keto friendly. <laughs> okay. So that that's a, that's a fair shopping list. I think most people would agree with that. Uh, so let, let's go to the, the list of the foods we should try to avoid. And I can probably venture a guess what's, what's on there. The biggest ones, especially if you're if you're trying to do a low carbohydrate or ketogenic kind of diet or, or intervention, the biggest ones are no grains, no sugars. So you're going to avoid the whole grains, which goes against a lot of the dietary nutritional advice. Um, and I get it. And if people are eating whole grains and they are otherwise and they are healthy, not even otherwise. If they are healthy, eating whole grains, keep doing whatever you're doing. If you're healthy, keep doing whatever you're doing. I don't care what it is. Um, but if you're trying to get into a metabolic or low carbohydrate state, no grains, no, definitely no sugar, no added sugar at all for any, you know, in any way, any form. Um, so, uh, no donuts. I'm sorry. I've got so, but I'm very fortunate. Mental health issues do not run in my family. Cardiovascular issues do, though. However, so I have to. Something I have to watch in my, you know, late 40s now is I can't overdo it. On I have to watch my red meat consumption, and so uh, again, the, yeah, that that's the issue I worry about in my family. Uh, so donuts not as you know concerning for me once a week on on sunday all right again for people who are healthy whatever they're doing is is if it's working especially if you're you know for a five-year-old child a lot of five-year-old children are healthy eating all sorts of junk food that probably is not going to lead to a healthy life but um so sugars and grains would be the biggest thing I would eliminate. Obviously, as we've already mentioned numerous times, process, highly processed foods with lots of chemicals. And, you know, if, if there's an ingredient list that's longer than six ingredients and you don't, you can't pronounce some of those words, um, I'm going to at least say that it's starting to look possibly like a processed or ultra processed food. Um, and, uh, and I don't mean that processing is like grinding up a nut and, and, you know, cause that's a process, you know, that, that is used to prepare nuts, but that's not the kind of processing I'm talking about. I'm talking about adding unnatural chemical ingredients. Um, and sadly, most of them, most of those chemicals have not actually been adequately studied in humans or even in animals in terms of determining what effects they have on long-term health. So uh, it's really kind of tragic what we are doing to our species by uh, just developing all these chemicals and feeding it to the masses um, and assuming that everything's going to be okay. And you look around the world and clearly everything's not okay. I think we got our marching orders with food. What role does exercise play in terms of how should we be thinking about which types of exercise, frequency, duration, um, if I'm concerned about mental health, what should I be doing? Exercise is huge for mental health. We have the best evidence that exercise prevents mental illness or poor mental health. Um, and the types of exercise that in large studies were found to be most beneficial are cardio, cycling, um, team sports. Um, team sports, almost certainly because you're, you're combining both exercise and relationships with other, with, in, 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 you know, at the same time. And we know that social relationships and connection are really important to mental and physical health as well. So uh, if, you, if you can go to the gym with a workout buddy, a friend, or join a team, volleyball, basketball, lacrosse, whatever. So all, those are all my sports. Awesome. <laughs> well, I'll rephrase that. They're all, they're all, I played basketball. I'm very excited for my, my girls who are going to be, I'm very tall. My girls be very tall to play volleyball, basketball, lacrosse, whether that you know, actually awesome. comes true. Those are great sports. We're on the same <laughs> wavelength. That's I just awesome. talked with my wife last night. 
That is awesome. Uh, and I did not know that. So <laughs> that is a little spooky that I just pulled those out of my head. But, um, uh, you know, if, you, if you're looking for one specific type of exercise that I think maybe has the most uh, evidence for improving mitochondrial health, it's probably zone two uh, training. So zone two training um, is probably the one that's better than others for improving mitochondrial health. But yoga, Pilates, it, things that include stress reduction, that include mindfulness, that include other practices are also extraordinarily powerful. We have good, reasonable evidence that they work. We actually have direct studies linking like mindfulness practices with improving mitochondrial health, believe it or not. Um, and uh, one caveat to exercise. So we have a lot of studies that have been done looking at exercise as a treatment for major depression. And many of those studies have actually been negative. And so a lot of researchers and clinicians in this space will listen to me talking and saying, but Chris Palmer, we've kind of proven that, that it doesn't work. Like it sounds good on paper, it sounds good in theory, but it doesn't work. And one of the things that those studies never took into account are all of the lifestyle factors which, and, and environmental factors, which include prescription medications in some cases, that might be interfering with your body's ability to get benefit from exercise. And what that, so I'll give you an obvious and extreme example. If somebody is an alcoholic and consuming massive amounts of alcohol every day, they can exercise all they want. And their exercise is not powerful enough to overcome the adverse metabolic and mental effects of alcoholism. It's just not. That person must give up alcohol as a, as a first step. And then adding exercise may be part of that treat, person's treatment plan. But if you ask that person to exercise while they are still drinking heavily, the exercise is probably a futile intervention. Or if you're having donuts every day. If you're, if you're having, yes, if you're having 10 donuts every single day, um, or you're eating tons of junk processed foods, exercise probably is not going to overcome the inflammatory effects and other effects of all of that sugar and processed foods. Um, and, and so those people would need to change their diet at the same time that they're trying to exercise. The, the sad thing is that we know that some prescription medications, and we have decent studies documenting this in randomized controlled ways, we know that some medications, even metformin, which is a diabetes medicine, can, can impair the benefits of exercise in humans. And what that means is that if, you know, when they were doing these studies of exercise as a treatment for depression, if those patients were taking a lot of prescription medications and or they were smoking cigarettes and or, and or they were using alcohol heavily, um, and or they were, you know, using metformin. All of those things might have been interfering with exercise's ability to improve metabolism and improve brain health. And it, it's a little unfair to say that exercise doesn't work. It, it, it Exercise works, but it has to be done in the right context. And it has to be done in the absence of, you know, clear adverse environmental factors. Makes sense. So in closing, what is your hope? Where do we go from here? We've got to <laughs> cut it up a dump ink out our hands. Uh, clearly, it seems a lot of the protocols we've established, uh, you know, I'll come back where we started. Just lost my wife and children and I got 13 days to grieve. So there's, there's a lot wrong. Where do, where do we go from here? What's your hope? The biggest hope is that once you understand how it all fits together, once you understand how biological, psychological, and social factors all come together through metabolism and mitochondria to cause the symptoms of mental illness, you can develop a plan to heal your mental illness. 
And I genuinely believe that. I know that sounds probably crazy to a lot of people. I genuinely believe it. And I have seen it countless times now. People who are told they have schizophrenia for life, people who are told they've got bipolar for life, chronic depression, it's not getting better. They've tried dozens of medications. They've tried ECT. They've tried years of psychotherapy. None of it's worked. I have seen those people get full, fully better, full remission. I think it is a new day in the mental health field. I think people need to learn more about this and then set out a goal to heal themselves or heal their loved ones, heal their patients if you're a clinician, as opposed to just accepting the current paradigm that a lot of people have chronic lifelong disorders. They were probably genetic and there's nothing more we can do for these people. Well, I, I, I hope you're right. We, we do need a new paradigm. And, and Chris, congratulations on the book. It's definitely a fascinating read. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jason. 